Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Jeremy, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. How are you, Will? Doing great. Thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. Do you mind giving us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I'm, I'm Jeremy Hadfield. I grew up in Utah and I attended Dartmouth where I studied philosophy and cognitive science. I graduated this spring and I'm now doing a master's in engineering management with a focus on climate technology. Um, so some of the big ideas that I'm interested in are, first of all, love. Um, that's a key idea that I wrote uh, my undergraduate thesis on, the philosophy of love and sexuality. I think it's an area that's um, maybe a little under-theorized and that there are just a huge variety of types of love and especially the type of romantic love fascinates me, um, the tensions within that concept and sort of the difficulty of achieving it. Um, that's, so that's one big area of interest. And I'm also interested in political economy. So thinking about how the economy ought to be structured and not just from an empirical economic standpoint, but from a more normative, theoretical, how should the economy be structured? Um, so, you know, engaging with non-orthodox um, economic theory, I think that's really fascinating too. Um, but then as far as, you know, less maybe like theoretical ideas, I'm really passionate about climate. Um, I think that climate change is an underrated existential risk by, you know, for example, maybe the effective altruist or rationalist communities, I think that it's sort of systematically underrated as a problem. Um, I think it's really critical and that it's an area that, you know, people my age who are just like entering the workforce can make a pretty substantial impact on by joining now um, in sort of the struggle to decarbonize, make an energy transition and to minimize the impacts on the biosphere. So yeah, climate change and the environment I'm super passionate about that, and I want to do as much as I can um, to help prevent the worst impacts of climate change. And then also, yeah, artificial intelligence. Um, I I went into college thinking that that's what I wanted to study, is like the ethics of artificial intelligence. And so, yeah, I took classes on neuroscience, computer science, um, like learning a lot about how, how, how intelligence might arise in the brain and how consciousness might arise in the brain. Um, and so, yeah, that's a, that's a passion of mine, um, figuring out how artificial intelligence might happen um, and how, like, for example, AIs might be differently aligned depending on the methods that we use to get there. So, for example, if we use, like, large language models like ChatGPT, what kind of different AI and, like, different alignment problems might we have versus if we trained with, like, reinforcement learning um, primarily? So... Yeah. Um, and it, I, I could go on. I realized that one, one, one big area I left out is here is the brain. Um, I'm really fascinated by the brain, how we, how the human brain is able to imagine and create. Um, that's something I'm super yeah, excited about learning about. Um, so I wrote a lot about the imagination. And so the, yeah, the imagination is 
definitely a huge focus of mine. Um, and yeah, my blog is called Realizing Imaginaries. So that's about how we can realize imaginaries of all kinds, these sort of indistinct concepts. How can we make them more tangible? How can we realize imaginaries in the concrete world? So yeah, that's, that's a little bit of an intro. Um, I'm 23 years old. So love it. Don't know much about the don't know that much about the world, but uh, I'm excited to learn more. Yeah, absolutely, man. So much I so much I want to dig into. It's just like what, what's the first thing? What would be uh, most valuable? Um, I, maybe I'll just follow my own curiosity a little bit. So you know, like being uh, you know somewhat rationalist community adjacent and you know EA adjacent, I I, I find I, I do uh, see your critique of um, you know in the X risk list. I'm not sure climate it, it even it comes up. Um, and now I I'm generally skeptical of. Um, climate change is an X risk. And I, I've had this kind of bias for a long time. Like I, I agree climate change is happening, but I'm just like, I'm not sure it's like as big of a problem as it is, uh, you know, touted perhaps in, in, in the mainstream. Um, can you steal man climate change and like why it is truly an existential risk for me? Yeah. Uh, before I steal man that I yeah. will challenge. I, I think that one problem that I have with EA is the way that you think about existential risk um, as like, it's like this long tail probability with infinite disvalue. Yeah. Um, and so that's why it has like so much impact on thinking about the future. Right. And I think that that's sort of a misguided framework because as soon as you assign infinite negative disvalue to some outcome, then it justifies virtually any action to right. prevent that. And I think that it's also almost never true. Um, like, yes, human extinction would probably have. I don't think that you can assign it infinite negative disvalue, um, just because that 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 creates that creates a problem in ethic ethical reasoning, where yeah, anything can be justified to prevent that outcome, regardless of how unlikely it is. And I think that in general, that this kind of thinking about existential risks does not factor in uncertainty enough, our uncertainty about the long term future, um, and especially the degree of uncertainty we have about how much our actions can impact the long term future. So, for example, I, I I'm very skeptical of the likelihood that, for example, EA can significantly change AI alignment in a way that reduces the risk of human extinction. Um, I think it can make an impact um, on preventing a misaligned AI, but I think that our, our knowledge about what actually would prevent a misaligned AI is so limited and our uncertainty about how AI will look and how it will turn out is so high um, that, like, I think that it's very exaggerated and it doesn't take into account the oh, huge amount of uncertainty, but going back to climate. Um, yeah. So just to challenge like the initial premise of the question, but to answer the question directly, um, why I think climate is an existential risk is because it risks the deaths of 10 to 20% of humanity. Um, I don't, I think that that should, that should be accorded like the same level of, or a similar level of ethical priority as something like, you know, AI takeoff. Um, cli will climate change result in human extinction? I think it's plausible that at four degrees, a four degrees Celsius increase, which is within, yeah. so like climate models predict, um, given virtually no action to decarbonize, which I think is a plausible scenario. Like right now, yeah, absolutely. right now we are, we are not really putting an effort to decarbonize. Um, well, it's a, a collective action problem at the end of the day yeah. too. So like, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's not unlikely that the, the worst case scenario would happen. Yeah, I think the worst case scenario is very likely, um, especially given what's going on right now um, with, you know, the COP27 just ended um, the climate conference and they virtually came to very little like concrete action. Um, and like the most dominant force there were fossil fuel consultants and lobbyists. 
So that's that's virtually where we are. And, and so that results in a prediction of about uh, three to f- three to five degrees Celsius increase in global temperature by 2100. And at a four degree Celsius increase, um, most grain plants um, will not be able to grow in their current growing ranges. Um, the sea level rises will be catastrophic. 70% of the human population lives within one mile of the coast. And most major cities um, along the coast will be inundated at a four degree Celsius increase. Um, not to mention that this, like it does increase the risk of severe storms and it results in like a lot of the human historical range will become uninhabitable, um, given, and like, yes, I think that it's plausible that humans will survive this. Um, but already this is the biggest mass extinction event in human history. Um, I mean, not in human history and geologic history, um, it's the fastest. We are we are killing species faster than the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs. I don't think many people realize that that like species are going extinct on hum- on the planet Earth. And so to underrate climate change to see that like this is the impact we're having on the planet. Species are dropping like flies faster than they did when an asteroid hit the planet. Um, we're seeing levels of warming that are unprecedented in speed. If you look at what they call the hockey stick graph, which is a famous sort of graph of the history of the Earth's climate. Um, it used to have like a lot of uncertainty and it was like a sort of a flat climate for a long time. And then a sudden spike at the industrial revolution that was controversial like 10 years ago, uh, 15 years ago, because people said that there was a lot of uncertainty in it. But since then it's been validated with things like ice cores and looking at tons of different um, trees and their, their rings to validate these historical temperatures. And based on that, this is the biggest spike in temperature increase in geologic history. Um, um, or at least since the last ice age. And so I think that generally it, it's a lot of hubris to assume that we can do this much to the earth without catastrophic negative impacts. And given existing models, billions of people will die as a result of climate change, um, given a two to four degree Celsius increase. And so, well, well, I think it's, I think it's like, yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily an existential risk in the sense that it will cause human extinction. Um, very likely, some humans will be able to survive, given that we have technology that will allow us to survive in like Mars-like conditions. So even if Earth turns into a Mars-like planet, right. you know, maybe some humans will survive. Um, it it will still be probably more habitable than Mars, um, which means like yeah, probably you know at least a billion humans um, will probably survive. But how is that like? How does that reduce the ethical priority of climate change? Um, like when when you're saying that oh it'll only kill like five billion humans, two billion humans, right? Oh, so it's and and we know that it's happening, and that's extremely li- likely. Um, then I think that it's clear that it should be an ethical priority. I think that the way that you can think about these things is how how high priority an ethical outcome is um, depends on things like its magnitude, like its severity. So maybe AI risk is more severe in that it could cause human extinction um, in in the most severe scenarios. But the probability of that, um, I think, is lower than climate change, at least our known probability. Given the information we have, we know climate change is happening. We know the likely impacts of it. We know that billions of humans will die from it. Um, We don't know the same about artificial intelligence takeoff. Um, And in fact, there are scenarios where that doesn't result in many humans dying at all. Yeah. Um, 
which is not the same for climate change. So right. I think that's that's how I sort of compare these things. And I think it's it while climate change might not be an existential risk, it's still a key ethical priority. Um, and I don't think like the fact that it won't kill all humans means that we can just dismiss it. Definitely. And I think there's, um, I've always been somewhat skeptical of AI risk because there's this sociological reading where, you know, most of the people in the rad adjacent community, EA community are software engineers. This is a software engineering problem. It's very fun to think about at some level. You know, you can just brainstorm infinitely about AI safety and, and all the ways this could play out. And, and, and I do wonder if it's just like so much more fun to think about than thinking about mosquito nets or, you know, uh, you know, how much the climate is changing at, at some level, which is just, it's just less appealing. And so it just, it just captures the imagination of everyone totally that is a great point will and that's something that i think is also under considered is a one way to think about this is a sort of a historical materialist like reading of ai risk which is why is it so popular well it fits with the class and structural interests of the people who tend to talk about it um so the class interests of like software engineers and ai researchers and like ai companies they're investing heavily in ai um and so, of course, like their priority is AI safety. How can we sh- ensure that this technology works out for us? Um, and they have, they are likely not going to be the victims of climate change. You know, like the developed right. world and like very wealthy people in the developed world are unlikely to se- see the most severe impacts of climate change. And so, yeah, the structural and class position of the people thinking about a problem, I think that's important to realize, um, you know, why... I, I think like effective altruism has almost been hijacked by AI risk. Um, yes, and these other right. important problems have, haven't been considered as much. Definitely. Definitely. Um, I, so, so I, I go back to climate change. What is the, what do you say is the answer? Is it just like a lot of lobbying for nuclear power plants or something or fission, uh, and, and just solving it that way? Is it, it, you know, what does it look like? Is it just decarbonization? Is it thinking about, you know, what kind of carbon tech removal technologies we can put together? Uh, what do you see as the answer there? Yeah. That's a great question. Um, and it's hard. It's, it's very hard. Um, I don't think that there's any silver bullet. And I also don't think that we can just hope on some vague technology. Um, I think that's like a common problem with techno optimists who are very also common in, in like the EA rationalist community um, that we sort of just assign like, oh, if we continue economic growth, maybe we reach AI takeoff. They'll just discover some technology that will solve climate change. Right. Um, it's a very, that's a, it's a very risky bet to make, um, especially given that we have no information, you know, little information about what technology there might be. Um, but to answer the question, I think that the solution is, is decarbonization. Um, and that means that, yeah, we have to reduce the use of fossil fuels as much as possible. I think that that requires in the short term degrowth. Um, and that's like very controversial. That's something that most people, you know, don't want. Um, right. And I think in the developed world, yeah, I think that it requires degrowth in the developed world, which means that essentially, like, yeah, it's a very difficult problem to solve because every government is incentivized to maximize economic growth. Um, you can't elect leaders who won't do that, who won't promise that. Um, and so that's that's a very difficult problem to solve. Um, I think that nuclear is, is, is an essential part of the picture. Um, the problem with renewables, I mean, the problem with, yeah, the problem with renewables is that they involve so many high they involve very difficult supply chains um so for example like the average wind turbine has like five tons of copper in it and copper is a very rare scarce resource that is becoming extremely difficult to extract and also requires a lot of carbon to extract 
the same with solar solar although it's less has less um like less you know high carbon materials it it's still difficult and both of those technologies in some areas are not even carbon negative because the cost of the supply chain um, and the carbon emissions in the supply chain um outweigh the like carbon reduction of the technology um nuclear however um First of all, it's faster to get online with a large amount of power. Um, it allows, it can operate at all times, which means that it's better for a grid, like an electricity grid. You know, a big problem with renewables is that they spike at some times during the day um, or at high wind peak periods. And so they're not consistent and reliable like fossil fuels are. So nuclear can compete with fossil fuels in that way. Um, the risk of meltdowns and like the problem of, of nuclear waste are very overrated. Um, those are really small problems. And like the problem of nuclear waste is virtually solved. Um, we just, yeah, we can put them in metal, metal cylinders underground and the risk of that is very low. Um, yes, it lasts forever um, or virtually forever, but I think that's okay in comparison to like, I mean, you know, yeah, so nuclear waste lasting forever underground is okay compared to, you know, permanently and forever um, destroying the biosphere. Um and nuclear also could potentially um, be dramatically improved with the use of fusion. Um, I think that fusion technology is, is is very achievable. And if you look at there's there's a there's an argument that um, fusion technology, the reason why we haven't reached it already, is simply because we haven't poured enough resources into it. And if you look at the historical funding for nuclear fusion research. It's really low um, compared to like the Manhattan Project. Yeah. Um, compared to even like research on solar and wind, there's very little money and very little, very few resources being poured into nuclear fusion, and that's been the case for a long time. And so there's an argument that instead of just like sort of dragging out nuclear fusion research at this very low level of funding for decades, if we had just poured tons of research into it in like the 1980s, 1970s then we could have it by now. Um, and I think that's still a possibility and nuclear fusion would be absolutely world changing. Um, yeah. so yeah, I think, I think the answer is, is nuclear is a core part of it. Um, and so that how, how to actually achieve nuclear will require a lot of lobbying. It will require a lot of like, really all of these problems are, we have technological solutions and we have real solutions that could, could prevent a climate crisis. And the problem is a social problem, a coordination problem. How do we get these systems that are misaligned with our real goals? You know, we have these human systems that are misaligned. They are not achieving human interests or human long-term values. And so how do we align these complex political economic systems with our real long-term goals? And that's an extraordinarily difficult problem. Definitely, definitely. Well, you know, perhaps uh, to, to make you a little more bullish, um, <clears throat> one of our investors, Sam, is um, on the board of a company called Helion. It's a big fusion company. It's raised a couple billion dollars, and he's quite bullish on, you know, within the next five years having some real breakthroughs in the fusion space. Um, I, I, want, I, I do want to highlight something you That's said. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. I, and I, I, am, I do believe this is possible. Um, I do want to highlight something you said there, and you mentioned degrowth. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? I, my, my worry... Um, 
And I, I do love the honesty there to mention degrowth. It seems like a lot of the discourse kind of ignores this. Um, but I, I have this feeling that degrowth would be very, very bad for our society in that I don't think like our democracy really works without like some level of growth where you can split up the pie in uh, more complex ways over time. Like if the pie is not getting bigger. If it's getting smaller, you know, the fights get more insane over time. And I do have this worry that perhaps what's gone on since the 70s is just this kind of slowdown in growth where the pie is not getting bigger. And then so downstream, the political just gets crazier and crazier. Yeah. Um, yeah. Degrowth is hard. Uh, like I want as, as someone, I'm a tentative ad- advocate of degrowth. I do think, yeah, the point that you have about democracy, a capitalist democracy without growth is difficult to maintain. Um, but really like we have had, we have had degrowth for the middle class for the last two decades. It's true. So um, like the middle class classes had increasing productivity and stagnating wages for the last two decades. And so saying, saying degrowth for me is yeah. degrowth for the upper classes and, you know, maybe some growth for the middle class. Right. right. And so like when, when I, when we say degrowth, like that doesn't necessarily mean that the GDP has to stop growing and we have to enter like a stagnating recession. It means that we have to have degrowth in the most um, carbon intensive industries. Yeah. So that means that like we have to consume less energy. Um, we have to consume fewer fossil fuels and the highest fossil fuel emitters are the top 1% and also, you know, obviously fossil fuel companies, but a lot of, a lot of like the fossil fuel emissions could be reduced by just essentially putting a carbon, putting a carbon tax in place. So taxing emissions on carbon, um, which would be a degrowth measure that would disincentivize certain kinds of economic growth. Um, but I think it would also incentivize other kinds of economic growth. So for example, that would mean that there would be a lot more funding for nuclear fusion and yeah. for renewable energy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I also think, though, that I think that even, even the extreme kind of degrowth, which advocates, you know, GDP has to stagnate. We cannot have increasing GDP and prevent a climate crisis. Um, I, think that's, I, think, I think that that could also be steel Um And one argument for it is that... Um, simply just like the scale of climate change requires that we take drastic measures and that the developing, the developed world doesn't really, I mean, if you think about it, like what do we need this growth for? Um, I don't know. I think, I think we have to think critically about like what the economy is providing us. And ultimately like the middle class has not seen a level of return from economic growth in the last two decades that we would expect and the developing world, um, I think. I think the biggest argument against degrowth is that it's it hurts the developing world the most. Um, it's kind of inhumane to say to the developing world, after the developed world has achieved this like huge level of economic prosperity and has also done immense damage to the environment, say, okay, we got here using fossil fuels, but the developing world can't do that. And I don't care about your poverty. Um, you need to do degrowth. I think that is inhumane, and that's like a good argument against degrowth. But I think the arguments against degrowth for the developed world are much harder to make simply because we primarily have a problem of distribution, I think. Um, And I don't know. I think that, yeah, we have, it is a problem that we've reached some level of sort of technological stagnation. Um, This is something that, you know, Peter Thiel talks a lot about. And I think there there are issues with this argument, but I think that fundamentally there has been some technological stagnation. Um, 
and that like the level of economic growth that we would expect from technological innovation hasn't been as much. Um, but I think that if we require decarbonization, then that would incentivize technological innovation um, in other areas. So yeah, I think, I think that it requires a sort of tempered kind of degrowth um, where the degrowth is most like, for example, we need to have degrowth in the financial um, industry and in the fossil fuel industry and degrowth for the upper class while we continue growth for the middle class. And, um, you know, like we still have extreme poverty in the U.S. So the growth, GDP growth can be very deceptive insofar as like it doesn't reveal how much different sectors of society are really benefiting from the economic growth. Um, so, yeah. I think that we need temp- a tempered kind of degrowth that's more targeted. Well, it sounds like, uh, you know, we were, we were talking before we started recording, you know, like, like what comes next for you and, you know, as you graduate, et cetera. It seems like you need to go uh, work for one of these fusion companies. You know, you're, you're working on engineering masters. Like it seems like uh, energy, uh, cheap energy that is, that is uh, clean energy and renewable is kind of the answer to most of these problems, avoiding degrowth, et cetera, escaping the climate crisis at the end of the day without like negative externalities. Yeah, <laughs> I think you're totally right. I would love to work for a fusion company. I don't think that, you know, I think that actually contributing to like basic research on nuclear fusion requires a lot more than I have. Um, like, you know, I don't, I'm no physicist, um, but I can contribute to like the operation side of it and the, you know, there's a lot of work to be done outside yeah. of like the direct basic research on Absolutely. getting nuclear fusion to happen. And I would love to work on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's totally, I would be, I would be excited about that. Well, and perhaps you should model yourself. Oh, there's a person I admire very much, General Groves, who was kind of the, you know, they had a two-in-the-box management style for the Manhattan Project, where it was Oppenheimer and General Groves. And General Groves is the Army Corps of Engineers who kind of, like, managed the entire project and actually demanded that Oppenheimer be his kind of pair, uh, despite him being a socialist and all these things. It was quite interesting. But, um, you know, he kind of managed the project. And so I, I do wonder if that's something that, that might be worth looking into. But that's just a, that's just a side note to consider. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah, totally. I think that the operation side of a lot of this basic research, you know, some people think like, if I want my career to have impact, does that mean I have to become like some researcher? When I think that really there's a lot of operations work um, that is really underrated, just like making these operations run more efficiently. How can you run teams and like build organizations effectively? That's really important work that, you know, while it's not the basic research, it's still super important, super critical. Definitely, definitely. It's very interesting. Um, I want to move on now and talk about, um, you know, these large language models. They're very, very, uh, you know, getting a lot of press, especially as we record this podcast. Uh, ChatGBT just came out a couple of days ago, and it's been getting quite a lot of um, traction on the Internet. Um, I, I'm curious. You've looked a lot about at these issues of, you know, consciousness and, and the brain and um, AI. Um, you know, so I, I was talking to Yudkowsky a couple of months ago at a party, and, and one of the issues that came up is, is GPT-3 conscious? And um, I, I have strong uh, priors that this is not the case at all. But, but I have to ask, do you think GPT-3 is conscious? No, no. I don't. Um, I think it may. But I think that that's an important question to ask. And I also think that whether it's, whether it's conscious or not depends on your understanding of consciousness, which for most people is, and and, in general discourse, like what we mean by consciousness is very vague. Um, And so, yeah, I, I, I think that how, how I tend to think about these problems is through the lens of Quality Research Institute. Um, Have you heard of QRI? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I was an intern at QRI um, two years ago as a researcher. 
Very cool. Can, can you tell the audience just what QRI is, Qualia Research Institute? Yeah, so Qualia Research Institute um, is a small nonprofit resource organization that's focused on developing mathematical models for consciousness. So it's attempting to understand what conscious is, consciousness is at a more fundamental scientific level. Um, and it has a theory that essentially conscious, um, it also wants to understand like pain and suffering and how these arise and give a mathematical explanation for those. And so it essentially looks at, um, it's developed a theory called the symmetry theory of valence, which argues that there's a mathematical object that is isomorphic to um, sort of the brain and patterns of the brain. Um, and that mathematical object, when it has increased symmetry, that results in more you know, joy, more pleasure, increased valence. And when that has dissymmetry, it leads to more suffering. Um, but yeah, those are very like abstract. But to make it more concrete, essentially, it, it has a lot of empirical evidence that um, sort of different kinds of symmetry in the brain result in more pleasure and more joy. Um, it also has some interesting hypotheses, for example, about the nature of suffering. So, for example, um, Andres, who's the lead researcher at QRI, has argued that there are logarithmic scales to suffering and pleasure, which means that the worst kinds of suffering are a thousand or even a hundred thousand times worse than, you know, other kinds of suffering. Um, so that it's sort of this, the, the amount of suffering increases exponentially. Um, and maybe the same for joy as well. Um, so, but essentially the QRI, QRI works on understanding these questions from a pretty non-orthodox approach of really trying to understand the mathematical basis and also doing research on psychedelics and trying to learn about how psychedelics can um, be used to productively understand consciousness um, and really be studied as consciousness modulators, um, predicting like why different psychedelics and different molecules that are psychoactive, why they have the effects that they do. Um, and I think that QRI is, it absolutely leads the field, it leads the world in research on that area, especially. Um, awesome. It has the best sort of mathematical scientific explanations for you know, specific aspects of psychedelic and psychoactive experiences. Um, and yeah, it also, it also has some very ambitious theories about consciousness. Um, but so, I mean, so one of, one of its theories, like it, it QRI, for example, thinks that consciousness um, arises from physical properties of the human brain um, and not from, you know, there's a function, there are functionalist theories of consciousness, which argue that essentially if you just have the right kind of system yeah. that's just connected in the right ways, then you just get consciousness. So for example, there's a theory called integrated information theory, which says that essentially there is a central node in a conscious sense system that most of the system is connected to and that consciousness arises in that central node. So in the brain, for example, um, there's a region that most, most of the brain is connected to or runs through. And so there's a theory that maybe that area is what gives rise to consciousness. And if you just develop a computer that has that kind of central node, that has access to you know, the rest of the system, then that is what arises. That, that's what gives rise to consciousness. And it makes intuitive sense because consciousness does feel like you know, your brain sort of having access to, or like some part of your brain having access to the rest of your brain. You can sort of access and be aware of different processing that's happening in your brain. And so if we give that to a computer, maybe they'll have consciousness. Um, but QRI argues that, no, that's not the case. Um, 
and there's sort of some important findings that that give evidence to the idea that it's not about just the functional structure, but also about the physical basis. Um, and that there are physical aspects of the human brain that mean that it gives rise to consciousness and a silicon-based system might not give rise to consciousness in the same way. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk about that a little bit more and, and perhaps what, what, what uh, you know, QRA, QRI thinks the distinction is and, and, and perhaps how much you agree with that and how much you don't? Yeah. Um, hmm. Okay, so yeah, I think that essentially consciousness for QRI um, arises from Oh man, these things, these things are these things are really difficult to summarize. But I think that I think that the simple the, the best explanation is that there's a kind of binding that occurs in the human brain. So binding is essentially like the synchronization um, between different aspects of your conscious experience. So yeah. for example, when I look at like this computer screen, my experience of um, sound and color and um, my sort of like emotional experience, they're all bound together and integrated into a single conscious experience. I don't experience right. those things separately. Like I don't first experience the color and then experience my emotion and then experience some like cognitive thing. They're all bound together into one um, sort of phenomenology, one experience. Right. And so for QRI, the, a, a critical question is, how does that binding arise? And there are different kinds of binding too. Um, like our experience is bound over time. We don't experience like these discrete, like different chopped up events. It sort of flows continuously. Um, yeah. And so how does that happen in the brain? Well, the theory is that there are these kinds of waves that occur in the brain. Um, the brain is kind of, you can think of it as a, it, it's less of like this a system like um, computers where there's just wires and like, um, you know, microprocessors that are connected in a sort of discrete way where it's just like one connection leads to the rest. There isn't like a wave, an electrical wave that like passes over your MacBook um, that does some kind of computation. But in the brain, there are these waves that occur throughout the entire brain, these electrical waves, um, and they're called connectome-specific harmonic waves. And so they have different harmonic frequencies. And QRI's theory is that they're doing an important kind of computation um, which is this holistic binding of all of experience together. Um, and that these kinds of waves are what give rise to the kind of consciousness that we, that we experience. Um, and yeah, there's also some speculation that um, there are like quantum effects in consciousness um, that I don't really want to get into. I, I first of all, don't understand that enough. And I think it can quickly lead to pseudoscience. Um, Nice. But there's some speculation that there are, yeah, there are quantum effects that can give rise to consciousness in the human brain. Um, there is evidence that things like, uh, that there are like, that, that quantum effects do influence how um, action potentials are transmitted in the brain. So uh, quantum effects do have some effect, um, but we just don't know what that is and whether they have an impact on consciousness. But yeah, to summarize, essentially, QRI thinks that there is some kind of wave, um, a harmonic wave, and that different that 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 harmonic wave and the structure of the harmonic wave allows us to do this kind of binding that occurs in consciousness. Um, so yeah, uh, 
that, 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 I think that's a decent summary of the theory. Yeah. Um, and that's one reason why something like ChatGPT, um, which has the structure of, you know, has about 20 billion parameters, yeah. um, which already is like, that's much fewer neurons than the brain has, um, much fewer synapses. Um, but it also is connected in a very different way, right? Like it's, it's connected through layers of a neural network um, and this transformer architecture. And that architecture is very different from the human brain. And it doesn't have these kinds of physical structures that the human brain has. And so from a scientific perspective, if you think that the causal factor in generating consciousness is this kind of physical wave, and like something like ChatGPT does not have that causal, that structure, then you would predict that GPT is not conscious. Um, so that's like sort of the, the first principles way to conclude that GPT is not conscious. But that you can also look not from first principles, just like observe GPT's behavior. And it doesn't seem to be conscious. Um, you know, it is very good at manipulating language in a way yeah. that appear that is consistent with, you know, our expectations of language. Um, it's very good at predicting the next tokens in a sequence and generating those tokens. So it has an extremely good model of human language. Um, but language is not the entirety of consciousness. It's a very, you know, text is, it, it's a key part of humanity, but it, like, you know, textual language um, is a very small part of it. And GPT does not seem to have a coherent model of the world. Um, and that can be revealed and, you know, you can get it to say some pretty stupid things. Um, and it also clearly sometimes misunderstands what it's talking about. Um, right. So it has like this symbol grounding problem. It seems to not ground its the symbols it's talking about in the real world, which is to be expected because all it has access to is text. It doesn't right. have access to the real world. You know, it can't say like, um, it doesn't know what a broom is. It doesn't know what, you know, Google is, even though it can talk about these things coherently, it doesn't have a world model of what those things actually do. Um, at least as far as we know. And also it, it, I think a critical part of consciousness, um, is having some sort of valence agency, like valence, um, in the sense of having moods, having experiences, um, like a critical part of consciousness is that we have experiences that have some sort of valence quality. They're either bad or good, or they have some sort of, there's some nature to this, that experience. And I don't think that there's any evidence that GPT is having those. Um, it, when it. you, it can't really accurately report its experiences. It can't talk about its experiences as someone who's actually experiencing things can talk about them. Um, and it also doesn't seem to, it doesn't seem to have any agency. Um, you know, it doesn't make decisions. It doesn't act like an agent. Um, so those are some reasons to think that it's certainly not on the level of consciousness that humans have, but there is still some question about, well, even if it doesn't have like anything near human level consciousness or even like rat level consciousness, um, rat level sentience, does it still have some kind of sentience? Um, so like consciousness, you might use that word for like something like what humans experience, what we have. Um, but you can use other words like sentience to describe a lower level of experience. And I think that's a harder thing to refute. Um, and I think it's possible that there is some kind of experience that is arising in GBT. Um, I think that's very unlikely, but I think it's possible. Um, and I don't know. There are definitely people who would argue for that. Um, Not entirely out of the picture. Right, right. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Um, I, I have one last big question for you. Um, and this is from our mutual friend, Vishal. Um, and, and it is, 
what are your favorite philosophers and why? Okay. <laughs> now this is where this is where I think that I'm going to lose the audience. Um, nice. I think yeah, naming 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 future naming favorite philosophers is always dangerous because people always have you know conceptions about what philosophers mean and but I'll, I'll jump into it. Um, yeah. My favorite philosopher is Nietzsche. Nice. Um, I would say other favorite philosophers include um, Hume, uh, Simone de Beauvoir, Marx, um, and Andres Gomez Emelson, who is one of the lead researchers at QRI and is still living. Um, I think he is. I think he's genuinely up there. Um, That's awesome. But yeah, uh, yeah, definitely, definitely Nietzsche is my favorite philosopher and has been for a long time. Um, but I also think he's he's difficult to interpret, and so why is Nietzsche your favorite philosopher? Yeah, so a few things. One, he is one of the best writers who also is a philosopher. Um, he his writing is really compelling and beautiful, and the way he writes is exciting and concise and he doesn't do the sort of trickery that a lot of philosophers, I think, engage in, the sort of word games um, and the attempt to construct yeah. like elaborate systems with language. Um, so that's an important part of it. It's just like his, his use of language and, and writing are really incredible. But that's not how you should measure a philosopher. You know, like you can be a bad writer and a good philosopher. Um, as a philosopher, I think that primarily, I think he's right about a lot of key things. Um, so, for example, I think he has some really good arguments about how consciousness arose. Um, he is very skeptical about things like morality and religion in a way that I think is really illuminating and ha like, has really key challenges. Um, he's like a really good foil for a lot of... He's a great foil because he's so, he's so compellingly critical, and I think his arguments are very clear and very compelling and often really under underappreciated um, against those systems. And since those systems are so influential, things like even the concept of truth, which is, you know, the key concept of Western philosophy, Nietzsche is the first to openly criticize that and criticize why is truth a priority? Um, why does philosophy focus on the truth? And that's something that really shifted the way I think about philosophy. Um, that he had a huge impact on me because I think that he asks questions that philosophers before him were not willing or able to ask. And so, and one of those key questions is what is the value of truth? It's a question that, you know, hadn't really been dared to ask before. Um, and so why do we put so much value on this idea that we can, our, like our concepts and our language can correspond to reality in some meaningful way, or that they can be internally consistent why do we value these things so much in philosophy and why haven't we questioned their value? Um, that's a key question that Nietzsche asked that virt he's virtually the, the first philosopher and, and one of the only philosophers to ask that question seriously and pursue it, um, which I think makes him really like rightfully influential. And then another key question that he asked is what is the value of value itself? What is the value of this concept of, of values and different ways of valuing things? Um, and so he calls that the revaluation of all values, um, you know, which is the idea that we need to change the way that we value things. And that like this inherited, these inherited concepts that we have, um, he says that we should discard almost all inherited concepts because they don't serve 
our fundamental interests as living beings who also are something to be overcome, like um, that humanity is something to be overcome and that in the future we may have different values. Um, that said, given all these things I love about Nietzsche, I do think that he is fundamentally wrong about a lot of other things, um, that he's very flawed. He's a very flawed thinker and he has a lot of biases um, and like, for example, I think that he is very aristocratic and he thinks that some kinds of people are fundamentally better than others and that human society should be devoted to these higher types. Um, and that is, I think that he can justify some really negative things, especially if you take those passages out of context. Um, and yeah, I, th I think that's a serious problem. Um, and maybe the biggest problem with Nietzsche is his sort of aristocratic taste and his idea that you know, some types are fundamentally better than others and his belief that that's like, that's really rooted in something, you know, genetic almost for him. Um, you know, he didn't really have genetics then, but he thought it was blood or spirit or something, not spirit, but something fundamentally material about certain kinds of people that make them better than others. And that mean that society should be devoted to them and that that justifies a lot of exploitation. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a huge problem with Nietzsche. Um, not to mention... He can be misogynistic, um, but I think that fundamentally he, he also that like these critiques are, you know, they need to be tempered. Um, but yeah, that, that, that's my, that's my overview of why, why I like Nietzsche and, and some reasons why he's also flawed. I love it. Oh, well, oh, what's a good jumping off point into Nietzsche? That's a great question. I, I yeah, I, I think that the first place you should start with Nietzsche is an essay, Schopenhauer's educator. Um, especially if you're young, it's just like a, a mind blowingly inspiring essay. It's very, it's very well written and it's really beautiful. It had a huge impact on me um, when I was younger. It has a beautiful passage about how your true self does not lie deep within you, but immeasurably high above you. We have this tendency of constantly psychoanalyzing ourselves and looking for this true self that's somehow buried within us. When for him, for Nietzsche, your true self is, immeasurably high above you, something that you can strive to achieve, um, but that does not exist within you. And he talks about um, how, you know, that you're like guiding yourself towards this, this true self that's immeasurably high above you, that should be guided by looking at all the things that you have loved in the past. And that's sort of the law of your true self. Um, the chain of things that you have truly loved, that should guide you towards this true self that's immeasurably high above you. Um, I think that's, you know, really beautiful and also a really compelling way to think about life and like the search for yourself. Um, so that's where I would start. And it also sort of introduces Nietzsche's style, but then the first book that I would recommend is the gay science. Um, the gay science is, has a lot of aphorisms um, and it introduces a lot of his key ideas. And yeah, one, one thing that people um, can really like about Nietzsche is that he, writes in aphorisms. So he writes in these sort of short passages. Nice. And so the gay sciences, you know, consists of like several hundred aphorisms. And so you can just read those aphorisms one at a time and they're pretty freestanding. Um, so he's, he's one of the easier philosophers to read, but he's very difficult to understand. So it's important, you know, when reading Nietzsche to remind yourself that even when he's easy to read and exciting to read and it seems fairly straightforward, he, he's very tricky, um, and he does try to trick his readers. Like, he, he tests his readers um, sometimes. And, 
yeah so he can be hard to interpret and it's important to like keep that in mind when reading him um to not sort of jump to conclusions too quickly um yeah and then after the gay science i would recommend the genealogy of morality um and then after that beyond good and evil um but yeah i think i think critically like there 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 are other i think also um on truth and lie in a non-moral sense is a really good place to start too that's a sh- another short essay so maybe start with those like short essays that introduce his style and then jump into the gay science awesome Awesome. Well, um, uh, I'll definitely check this out. That, that, that's really, really good recommendations there. Um, well, Jeremy, uh, thanks for taking the time to, to come on the show. Where can people find you and, and where should we send them? Yeah. So I have a website, jeremyhadfield.com. And that's where I've written about things like my most recent essays on why large language models will not understand human language. <laughs> that's cool. It's a little bit of an unfortunate essay to release so close to chat gpt um that's right you know i feel a little bit you know uncertain about some of the claims i made there now um but i do think it's a fundamentally still like a i do think that fundamentally chat gpt doesn't understand human language even if it can come very close to simulating that understanding um but yeah i, I write on my essay jeremyhadfield.com and then i'm starting up a sub stack which i haven't written on very much right now but it's called realizing imaginaries nice yeah. Good deal. Good deal. We'll put a link down in the show notes. Well, thanks so much. Really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for having me on, Will. Absolutely. Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief, a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at donovandorrance.com.